Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. For the first time in a while, I have quite a bit of fun travel coming up this summer, and I'm really counting on Macy's to help round out my wardrobe for some of these trips. Right now, I've got my eye on a new bag and sandals from Coach and some super cute tops and dresses from Macy's on 34th brand. And you can never really have too many pairs of sunglasses. And there are a lot of cute options to explore right now. If you need a little help getting your summer look together, shop at Macy's.com slash own your style. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, 
It is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 134 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. I hope you enjoyed some time off last week and are continuing to take good care of yourself as we wrap up 2019. Something that continues to come up in the work that I do with my clients and even in my own therapy sessions is the impact that racism has on both our mental and physical health. I'm sure many of you have heard about Gabrielle Union being fired from America's Got Talent in part for being quote-unquote too difficult, and because the executives had concerns about how often she changed her hair and the styling of her hair. And let's not forget about the complete circus that the NFL subjected Colin Kaepernick to a few weeks ago. It often just feels like there's little to no escape. So I wanted to chat with a colleague more about how racism does impact us and how we can continue to take care of ourselves and one another in the face of it. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Candace Nicole Hargons. Dr. Hargons is an award-winning psychologist who specializes in healing racial trauma and sex therapy. She's an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, where she studies sex, social justice, and leadership, all with a love ethic. She is also the founding director of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. Dr. Hargons and I chatted about the work she's done and continues to do to arm Black people with incredible resources to work through racial trauma, how we can advocate for ourselves, and how that might look differently for each of us. And she offered tips for dealing with racism at work and school. If you hear something that resonates with you while listening, please be sure to share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hargons. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to chat. So you will have heard in the intro, but Candace and I went to UGA together. So we are yeah. fellow dogs. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always great to chat with somebody who has some of that common background. And I was really excited to have you on the podcast to talk about the work that you do with healing racial trauma. So can you just tell me a little bit about how you got into doing that kind of work? Yeah, you know, I was born a Black woman. and no. <laughs> Indeed. But for real. No, seriously, I, I grew up in predominantly white areas, like is a story for a lot of black women. And over time, what I learned was how to cope and tolerate racism as opposed to how to resist it and heal from it. And so when I became a psychologist, when I started training, I was at Emory University Stress Clinic for one of my training rotation years. And we learned meditation and biofeedback and other stress reduction techniques. And it was around the time where Mike Brown had been murdered and there had been an onslaught of like police brutality and murders of the church in South Carolina of the black clergy there. And it was just like, I'm learning all these skills and there needs to be a way that I can apply them to something that resonates with my cultural experience. So I started thinking about how to do that in research and then in practice when I became a faculty member at University of Kentucky because it's a very white place. And although I feel like I have colleagues and students who want to be about social justice, I don't think 
we get answers to how we use these skills in that way. So I started practicing in that way and thinking about how I could take all that I learned and apply it to healing racial trauma for people of color. And from that just emerged the Center for Healing Racial Trauma and the meditation I created and other things. And that comes from working with a lot of other really dope psychologists and therapists of color. So that's the short version of the story. Yeah, I love that history. And I think, you know, it it brings to mind this conversation that I've been following mostly on Twitter of other people of color academics talking about not getting support for the kind of projects that you're talking about, right? So when we study the Black community or we study other communities of color, there isn't always widespread support in terms of like grants and scholarships and those kinds of things to do this critically important work. Oh my goodness, yes. I'm submitting an NIH grant now to do some healing racial trauma work with meditation. So keeping my fingers crossed for that, but it does feel frustrating to have to go to organizations that are largely run by people who don't look like me to ask them to fund research about people that I care a lot about. Hmm. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, if y'all just get rid of racism, then we don't necessarily have to right. funnel all of our time <laughs> into this, right? But that's not happening. That's so we have step to, one. <laughs> right, right. So then we have to make sure that we are creating resources and support to be able to take care of our people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So tell me more, Dr. Hongans, about how you use this work clinically. You know, like how are you using this with your clients? In 2016, I created the Black Lives Matter Meditation for Healing Racial Trauma. And I created that one using it's a guided meditation. So using some aspects of mindfulness, some aspects of affirmations that are specific to the Black experience, and some meta, which is loving kindness meditation. So I put those three together using research about what meditation modalities might best fit Black people. And I sent it out to listservs full of therapists, psychologists, counseling centers, colleagues in private practice. And then I held my breath. Because I was, one, feeling really vulnerable and nervous about creating something as an intervention, being a pretty early career psychologist, but I recognized that I needed it. And so it might be likely that other people would need it. And I got an overwhelmingly positive response. People emailing me saying, girl, I didn't know I was going to be crying in my office listening to this meditation after you sent it down the list, sir, but I really needed this. People saying, man the affirmations you spoke to really made a difference to how I see myself and how I experience the day to day. So knowing that people listen to the meditation and that it really resonated with them was a good first step for me because, you know, you learn things and you apply your skills, but oftentimes we don't get feedback from a national audience about, is this actually working? Is this something that you want to use again? And getting that good feedback. And I got some trolling too from some white people who didn't want, you know, they didn't want us to be healing from racism and being able to do something about it. But for the most part, the response was good. And so I started to think about, well, how else can we use this? So as I was developing the Center for Healing Racial Trauma, recognizing that meditation would be useful, deep breathing would be useful. But now we're expanding. So I do individual therapy and group therapy as well just talk therapy, but how do we incorporate music? How do we incorporate storytelling? How do we incorporate these culturally relevant ways of healing 
because we've known how to heal as a group of people in the diaspora for generations and generations well before there was talk therapy. So I want to make sure that I'm honoring the fact that we have this legacy of healing and caring for each other that goes beyond what I learned in predominantly white spaces, but that there's some real value in talk therapy and how to combine those things in a way that makes people of color feel like, yo, this is for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about not only healing from racism, but also resisting it. I find even in my own work and, you know, just even talking to other colleagues, this is such a difficult balance because it is so cumulative. You know, so it's like you work with somebody to do one thing and then there's another breaking news story or something Mm -hmm. happens at the school or something happens in the workplace. And so it feels like you can make some progress and then Mm. something happens and it almost undoes all the progress that you've done. So can you talk Mm. to me more about like how you can help clients to resist racism? Absolutely. This touches on something me and my brother were talking about. So. A few days ago, the University of Kentucky shared this story about me and my research. And my brother was like, man, I'm so proud of you. I really appreciate what you're doing. He's like, but I got a question. I'm like, what's up? He's like, can you actually heal from racism if it keeps coming? Like, if it keeps coming, how do you heal? And I was like, man, that's a good question. I was like, I don't help people heal so they can just heal and deal and keep letting racism accumulate in your body and just deteriorate you. That's not the point. The point is so that we can be well enough to resist so that when you experience a racist encounter, that you can do something for yourself. If you're in an environment where other people aren't going to stand up for you, other people aren't going to contribute to your wellness, that you have something that you can do. And then you learn strategies from your wellness of how you can resist. So how you can talk back, how you can fight back, how you can dismantle these systems of oppression, because that's a part of healing. I don't think healing comes without resistance when we're talking about something like racism. And so a part of that work is, okay, here are the ways to get your mind and body to feel well again, so that you stop having these intrusive thoughts, or you can breathe better again, or you don't feel like your body get tight when you're around a group of white people in the same way. Here's some things we can do for that. But then how do you want to intervene when someone microaggresses you? Let's talk about strategies for how you can stop them and correct them and let them know that that's not acceptable and it won't happen again. How do you systemically intervene when you are in a place where all the people on the wall look like generations of white men and just to be in that place feels threatening? How do you go to administrators? How do you bring people together to collectively resist? How do you use your body in a way that feels valuable? And at the same time, how do you assess your risk level and determine when it's good for you to intervene in certain ways and not in others? So using strategy and thinking about like how much this work takes from us energetically lets me know, okay, what level of resistance are you ready for based on your wellness? Because sometimes you just need to rest and that's the best resistance you have. And sometimes you want to put your body on the line and your money on the line and your time on the line. And both of those are valuable. So the resistance piece can look different. It might be you using writing, you writing op-eds. It might be you doing something like this, Dr. Joy, with the podcast and giving people a platform to talk about this. That's resistance. So I like to incorporate how you do both. 
but you don't resist well when you're not well. Ah, so that is the first step is mm-hmm. just really looking at your overall wellness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what are some of the strategies that you maybe can share for people who may be in different places in terms of like their ability to do this resistance work? I have a ton of them. Okay. <laughs> The more, the better. Okay. So for, let me start with who I work with often. So students, I work with a lot of students. They might be graduate students. They might be undergraduate students, but for them, sometimes you might experience a professor's racism. You might experience other classmates racism. And the first step I always say is to invite that person to change. So Very often you can give a person an opportunity to correct their behavior and because they want to be a decent human being, they're willing to make that correction. So when we give that opportunity, then they make the correction and you repair the rupture in the relationship just by them responding well to the fact that they messed up and here's an opportunity for them to correct themselves. But sometimes people don't. Sometimes they double down in their racist gestures, in their words, in their isolation of you and their degradation of you as a racialized person. And the first thing I go to is a reminder that we're the global majority. So we use words like minority. We use use those phrases when really 13 to 14% of the population in the globe are European or white Americans. Everybody else is a person of color. So when you recognize that you're not in a minority, that you come from a strong history, a beautiful tradition, then that empowers you to feel less isolated and less marginalized and get connected to your power that you deserve whatever space you want to take up, that you have a right to speak back and to address the situation at the next level. I think a way racism works is to function by scaring people out of resistance. So it's one reminder that you deserve to resist. You have people who will have your back if you choose to resist. So thinking about who your networks are, if you have a group of faculty and you have two people of color on the faculty, reaching out to them and saying, hey, this has happened. This is the way I want to address it. Can I have your support? If you have other colleagues of color and even white allies who say that they want to be accomplices then you reach out to them and say, hey, I need your support because I'm going to take it to the next level and watch people show up for you. So inviting your colleagues, your allies and your collaborators in is the next level after you've tried to address it one on one. And that might look like them addressing the person because you've already had a one on one conversation and maybe they can receive correction better from someone else. It can also look like you documenting all the instances where racism has occurred and then taking it to a person who has more systemic power. It can look like you protesting through creating signs or showing up to the classroom. I put a post up about this a few weeks ago, showing up to the classroom with signs that say racism won't be tolerated here. So if you want to take your action to the next level, something more visible, it can look like some of the students at the university had a scheduled a meeting with the president And some students locked the president into a room and they were like, you're going to listen to us. This is important. I mean, you can go all the way up depending on what you feel like you're willing to risk. So that's one of the things that I talk to students about. Even when you're thinking about protests where 
you are picketing or you have signs and you're out and there's a presence of people who might be against your protest, like how to shift your body so that you're not at risk of a physical attack, what to wear, who to have on your team, always have a historian there, a person recording the scene who's not in the immediate line of action. So those pieces are important. Storytelling, using your voice, doing podcasts, doing narratives, doing recordings and videos about your experience. All of those are resistance strategies. And I appreciate you sharing that, Dr. Hargens, because I know we've talked before on the podcast about what gets the most media attention, right? Or like protests where people are like, picketing or something Mm -hmm. like that. But that isn't the only way that Mm -hmm. resistance and protest can look. And so some people may not feel comfortable doing that or may not feel like that is where their gift lies Mm -hmm. and can use these other strategies to be able to resist as well. Absolutely. I like to let people know that I'm an introvert. So being in a protest in a march is probably not where you're going to find me because one, I get physiologically way too aroused in that situation. One time I was at a Trayvon Martin rally in Atlanta. Girl, let me tell you, within five to 10 minutes of being there, I passed out. That is, yes, because there were so many people and so much energy. People talk about being an empath and then you live that life. (laughs) I absorb all of that. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm not feeling well. Like I feel myself getting dizzy. Next thing I know, I'm in an ambulance. So I was like, this is not a resistance strategy that is fit for my constitution, but what can I do well? I can write well. So that's what I'll use, scholastic activism. I can speak well, so I can do consultations with organizations. I can show up and strategize with students. I can organize. Those are the skills that I have. Those are the skills that I use. But I recognize as an introvert, I can't be in a large crowd of people and feel well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are, I appreciate you sharing those very tangible examples and experiences from your own life. I don't think we often think about like, okay, you know, I want to show up and I want to do something, but what is actually going to be the thing mm-hmm. that is most aligned with who I am? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to also talk with you, Dr. Hargons, about racism in the workplace. So we have so many conversations about this in the community. People just really, really struggling with microaggressions, macroaggressions, just completely overt expressions of racism. And, you know, the thinking is often, you know, okay, make sure you're like documenting things and talking to HR and you know, and some of those things may be for may be effective, but I think for a lot of people, it's just not enough. So, mm-hmm. what strategies do you have for people who are working in workspaces where there are these instances of racism and they don't feel supported by HR or whatever? And I think that's often the case. Yeah, we we think HR is HR works for the for the company. That's what I know. Sure. So even when we report things, their responsibility, and especially if they're working in concert with the legal team, is to protect the organization. And that means that organization is going to like lobby around whatever will look best in PR more often than not. So they might make small interventions if that looks good, but they also might not do anything. And so I just want to acknowledge and validate that the experience of racism in the workplace and feeling alone and like documentation isn't enough is real. You want to have outside colleagues who don't work in that system, who haven't been absorbed into the homeostasis of that system that you can talk to about what's going on, preferably people in the same field who you can go to and they don't feel 
beholden to that organization. They're not paid by that organization, nor are they evaluated by that organization. So you might have groups like, say, if you are in medicine, instead of going to your hospital or your doctor's office HR, who might really have relationships with the people who are microaggressing you or engaging in racist acts, you might go to the American Medical Association or whoever the accrediting body is for the type of work you do and make your report there or the ethics council for the organization or the field that you work in and make your report there. But you also might need to take it to the media. And a lot of people feel concerned about what that means. So what you have to risk, be willing to assess is your risk level and what you can tolerate. So I say there are livelihood, life, and luxury fears. So your life fears are, is it possible that someone could kill you? And I don't say that lightly because we know people have died being actively involved in the movement, resisting for themselves. That has happened. So if that is on the line for you, then you might think about are people that I love or am I in danger of losing my life? That's a life fear. You also have livelihood fears. So that might be the fear that you will lose your job and lose the ability to provide resources for yourself or for people you care about. And that, as we know, has happened for people. I don't want to minimize the fact that some organizations and agencies act like that. They will take away your job. They will fire you. They will find a way to create a scenario where you want to leave. And then there are luxury fears. And those are fears where, well, maybe people will isolate you at work. You won't lose your job, but they won't talk to you anymore. Or people might be talking when you walk into the room and stop talking. So they make you feel really uncomfortable but you're not at risk of losing your life or your livelihood. So you have to know at what level you feel comfortable intervening and there's no judgment for any of those levels. If you're the only person providing resources for your family, maybe now isn't the time where you want to resist in a way that might cost you your job. And maybe you'll strategize for how to do that once you have enough save to make that move. So I want to acknowledge that there are different levels at which you might engage. But say you're ready to go to the next level. You can use the media. So that might be writing an op-ed in local or national news. That might be going on the news with a report, speaking to a reporter about what's been happening. You have to document like we talked about, but that's not enough, but it is enough to create the case for your story. So you can write it on your own blog or you can write it for a place like Medium or Huffington Post or your local newspaper and detail what's been happening and how you've been attempting to resolve the situation and the ways people have made it really difficult. You can speak with your therapist about how to use your mental health to say, I need time off from this environment. So maybe you had your anxiety exacerbated because every time you walk into the building, you feel like your shoulders get tight. You feel your heart racing. You feel faint. You feel exhausted. And it's just exacerbating whatever symptomology you see. That might be a way where you resist by saying, I'm not going to come here anymore until this environment creates for me a space that allows me to function well. Those are a few of the examples that I give people. But we talk through what the unique experiences are that they're going through. Sometimes it's a way that you can bring other colleagues on, but oftentimes it's not and you need to go through outside channels. You can contact your local NAACP or Urban League or Black Lives Matter chapter or other agencies that are about social justice and have them come in 
and do workshops or consulting so that you don't have to be the one to do the emotional labor. I know that gets put on us a lot and you can't be the one being microaggressed and being targeted and also trying to do the emotional labor of educating everyone, especially if that's not even your specialization. So those are some of the strategies that you can use for resisting. Yeah, those are great strategies, Dr. Hargis. I had not thought about the idea of like getting your larger accrediting bodies involved as opposed mm-hmm. to going to, you know, the HR directly in your company. I bet that that is a far more effective strategy than talking to your HR in-house. And it depends on who's in your HR, right? But Oftentimes, HR, they have buy into the organization. They want to keep their jobs, too. Right, right. Of course, of course. So something else that comes up, and I definitely think about this a lot with my own kids in talking about racism in school. Uh, And uh. (laughs) right, the deep breath. That you have to take and just thinking about. And I think it was recently Procter & Gamble, I believe, had the commercial about like the talk that Black people have to have with their children and thinking about like, how do you navigate this? Do you have any tips for parents helping kids to deal with like racist acts at school? Yeah. Mm. That hits home for me in a new way because I'm a new mom. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. and I have been thinking about this because my husband and I are looking at uh, daycare facilities uh-huh. and preschools. And, you know, you got to get on the list all in advance for stuff like mm-hmm. that. But that means I also have to interview these places. And I'm very mindful now as we're thinking about who we want to interview about what does the faculty look like? What does the mm-hmm. staff look like? You know, are they trained if they don't look like us to Mm -hmm. treat my son as a human being and recognize his brilliance, respect him, all of those things. So the first thing you start with is your racial socialization at home. You affirm the beauty of their blackness, the brilliance of their blackness with our history, history that predates slavery, with the amazing people who are currently black and doing amazing things. You want to reinforce that there's value in a Black identity and that there are a number of ways to be Black, that it doesn't have to look just one way so that the internalized racism and external racism, both of those messages aren't impacting your your kids at school because we've got kids who think that to be smart is not to be Black when we know that's not true. And we've got kids who think the other side of it, that all Black kids who are in elite schools are there on scholarship or are there because of affirmative action. And we know that's not the case. So racial socialization is that process where you share the good parts about being who they are. And because when they're reinforced with a strong racial identity, the impact of racism, according to the research, is less severe. That's one preventative gesture before they even get there. So the books that you have at home have people of color in them doing amazing things. The people that you surround them with, the organizations that your kids are a part of that are extracurricular, all of those should be filled with a variety of ways to be Black or to be a person of color, whatever your identity is. And then you talk to your school, setting really thoughtful and thorough standards about what it means to treat your child well, because respect is culturally defined construct. So what we mean when we say respect might be different than what somebody else means when they say respect. So letting them know what does it mean to respect your child? What does it mean to respect your race? What does it mean to be proud? What does it mean to be empathic? And because there's a lot of research on this, you can find these different organizations who talk about, okay, 
this is what your curriculum should look like if you want it to really impress upon all kids, not just the kids of color, that people of color are valuable and worthy and amazing. You want to ask your school to, to diversify their books, to diversify their staff if they need to, to diversify their faculty. It shouldn't be that all the faculty and administrators are white people and all of the maintenance staff and cafeteria staff are people of color. And if that is the case, then something about external or systemic racism created that to be the way. So letting them know what you'd like to see. Of course, visiting your kid's school, sitting in on class sessions, letting them know what behaviors are acceptable, culturally relevant ways of showing love and care. All of those messages are important so that your kids know and then your teachers and your administrators know what you'll be looking for. That's the way I've been thinking about it. And I've been doing some consulting with different school systems here in my area in Kentucky around how they can have courageous conversations around race, how they can rethink their diversity councils if they have one, or how they can get other parents involved in doing this work so that the bird isn't on only the people of color to do this, the teachers of color, the one or two parents of color. That's a starting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I have been encouraged to see that there are so many like book lists that are coming out about, you know, books that feature black kids and mm-hmm. black stories about all kinds of different things. Right. Because it is important for kids to be able to see themselves reflected in the kind of literature that they're yes. reading. Yeah, Absolutely. So I, and other I kids will, need to see it too. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I definitely will be including all of those in the show notes so that if people are looking for those books that they can find all of those things as well. Absolutely. So Dr. Harguns, can you tell me more about the center that you just opened? Um, yes. Tell me, um, like, what kind of work are you going to be doing there? Like, what kinds of services are you going to be offering? Yes. So we just opened in September. It's been in the works for about a year and a half. And right now we do individual therapy. So I see clients all over the state of Kentucky and I use a digital platform to do that or I see them in my office, but mostly because a lot of people don't live in Lexington, I'll see them digitally. But we also will start when the physical center opens the group therapy and our groups might include talk therapy, but also we've got some drumming and drum circles coming sound therapy. So I don't know if you guys have heard of like a sound bath and Mm -hmm. yes, that meditative state that it puts you in and an ability to just like reduce your heart rate and relax. So using sound baths, using storytelling and hip hop, those are some of the therapeutic modalities. So I have been a poet all of my life. Like as far back as I can remember writing, I've been writing poetry and using that as a healing modality to tell stories, to to write poems. So all of those things in connection with racial trauma. One of the workshops we have coming up is called Therapy. And we're going to be talking with Black women. This will be during Black History Month about our relationship with our hair and our skin tone and how internalized racism has created all these messages around how we see ourselves and our beauty and what those standards are and how to heal from and decolonize our curls and our coils and our kinks. So that's one of the outreach components where therapy isn't just like, I have a one-on-one relationship with you, but it's sometimes I have a relationship with my community or a relationship with members at this church and we all come together and do things that are healing. 
So that's one side of it. That's the intervention side. The prevention side of it is our organization does consulting workshops and training and sometimes retreats with organizations, churches, medical professionals, mental health professionals around anti-racism. So we have courses on cultivating an anti-racist mindset or how to have courageous conversations about race or healing racial trauma. And we've done these nationally and internationally for years, but now I'm just housing it under the umbrella of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. So there's a prevention side, which is those consulting and training and workshop type of things. And then there's the intervention side, which is like the therapy, one-on-one talk therapy, group therapy, and some of the sound and creative therapies. Love it. I'm really looking forward to seeing all of the great work that is going to come out of your sensor in the years. Thank to come. you. It's going to be amazing. So what resources do you have, Dr. Hargons, for anybody who wants to maybe read more about some of the things that you've talked to or some resources that you find yourself suggesting to your clients frequently? Mm-hmm. So another person who is UGA affiliated that you might know as well as Annalise Singh, Dr. Annalise Singh just created. Yeah, yeah she just created the Racial Healing Handbook. So I've been using that. Actually, my colleagues and I are walking through that together so that we can make sure that as we're doing this healing racial trauma work and this social justice work, that we are being mindful of our own need for healing and continued work in that area. So her racial healing handbook is one I recommend. And it's basically a workbook that you can go through over a number of months where you unpack some of the messages you received about your race and how you develop your racial identity and what makes you proud about being a person of color, a black person, all of those pieces. So I use that. It's really accessible. You can read it. Anybody can read it. The meditations are a resource. You can find those on the Center for Healing Trauma website at centerforhealingracialtrauma.com or my drcandicenicole.com website. So it's the Black Lives Matter Meditation for Healing Racial Trauma. That usually works best when you've experienced an encounter that feels like a microaggression or a more overt racial harassment. And you give yourself about 17 to 20 minutes to listen to the meditation and it kind of walks your body through relaxation and affirmation. So using that is a strategy. And I recently did a research study to determine the empirical value of it. And so I'm looking forward to hopefully having that paper come out. But we found that people generally feel better physiologically and mentally when they listen to the meditation. So that's awesome. If you like reading research articles, Dr. Helen Neville has some amazing articles on like mm-hmm. the cost of racism for people of color. Uh, Dr. Gioni Lewis, she has some amazing work on the intersection between sexism and racism for Black women in particular, because as we know, intersectionality is real. It's not just racism and that's it, but it might be racism in age and body size and ability, all of those things intersecting that are just cumulatively wearing us out. So she has some really good work in that area. If you're a white person, there's a journal called Becoming Anti-Racist. You can look that one up. It's L. Glenise Pike. So many books that I love reading of people of color writing about racism. So I usually highlight people of color who've written about it. Not to say that white people don't do a good job, but I think that they get enough press. So I want to highlight the people that I know who are Black women in particular, but people of color in general who write about this. And those are some of my faves. 
Perfect. And we will definitely be including all of those in the show notes. So you've already given us your website. Can you say it for us one more time so we can make sure we get that accurately? Yes. It's www.centerforhealingracialtrauma.com or drcandicenicole.com. And then you can find Dr. Candace Nicole on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. I have a Twitter, but I'm never on Twitter. So I don't <laughs> so don't try to find her on Twitter, y'all. Just well, find her I on mean. Facebook and Instagram. Right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all this great information that you shared with us today, Dr. Candace. I appreciate you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I was just excited that I got a chance to connect with you, my UGA sister. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm so glad Dr. Hargans was able to share her expertise with us today. To find out more information about her and her practice and the resources that she shared, be sure to check out the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 134. And please remember to share this episode with two people in your circle. And don't forget to share your takeaways with us either on Twitter or in your IG stories using the hashtag TBG in session. If you're searching for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out the therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic and meet some other sisters in your area, come on over and join us in the Yellow Couch Collective, where we take a deeper dive into the topics from the podcast and just about everything else. You can join us at therapyforblackgirls.com slash YCC. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey, ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com slash RTP.